Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and Happy New Year. This is Howard J. Smith, and I will be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Rinaldo Brutico. Rinaldo, as most of you know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. I also want to say this is the beginning of our fourth year of doing these uh, calls for the benefit of our members, and uh, we're glad that you're able to join us today. Uh, if you want to see this show, or listen rather to this show, or any of our other past shows, simply go to our website, www.worldbusiness.org, and you'll see a link there to all of our past programs. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we'll include questions and comments from you, our audience. Um, these we usually request people email in in advance. And if you'd like to place a question about this show, any prior shows, or just ask a question in general about the Academy, simply email us at info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today we're going to be focusing on several key topics. First, Ronaldo and I will discuss the current hype and hyperbole in Washington, D.C. over the so-called debt ceiling and why this is not going to affect your life, despite the breathless fear-mongering going on in the media. The real issues on the table are of much more consequence and will actually change the economy probably for the better. These issues include U.S. defense spending, the outlook for economic stability in Europe, and the conclusion of the so-called war on drugs. We'll also be speaking with Ethan Nadelman, Executive Director of the Drug Policy Alliance, to discuss the outlook for real change in drug policy during the second Obama administration term. Ronaldo and I will also be doing our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, with particular emphasis today on latest on gold, housing, and also commercial real estate, and oil. And just as a reminder, oil was $85 a barrel at the election back in November. Now it's risen about 10% in two months. Um, so we're going to be talking about that a little bit as well. Uh, Ronaldo, again, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our members with concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society. Can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means in light of the news and the events going on around us today? Ronaldo, take it away. Um, Thanks, Howard. It's great, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone. This is, I think, our first show of the New Year, so it's great to be with you all again for another year. And um, I really want to urge you to feel free to go back into our archives, pick up an MP3 file of any of these shows going back over the last three years, and um, we're pro we're proud and pleased to have people go back and check how we did a year or two ago. In fact, we start talking about gold later in the show. We'll we'll we'll, we'll take a little credit for having been right on that for so long. In any event. <clears throat> The reason for today's opening comment really is, uh, as much as I would like to not have to say what I'm about to say, I have really no choice because the media keeps blowing this up into a big conversation piece, and that has to do with the debt ceiling. So I just want to make a declaratory statement that's really emphatic, and then I'm going to deal with it hopefully in, in enough substance that you'll be okay with the statement. The statement is this. There is no issue with the debt ceiling. None. It is a false issue. It is not even remotely possible that this Congress would, and if they would, that this president if would, would cease to honor the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is an anachronism of history, and all it does is it permits you to pay the bill that you already racked up on your credit card. And just for the record, the bill that got racked up was racked up by the Congress, not the president. So the Congress authorizes money to get spent. The president spends what the Congress tells him, and only what the Congress tells him, because all money bills must originate in the House of Representatives. So under Republican control, the money gets allocated and spent, and then when the bill comes due on your credit card payment at the end of the month, the Congress is not free to say, well, we're not going to pay the bill because we decided we're going to punish the president, or we want to hold the debt ceiling hostage. So what you're going to hear is a lot of media pundit talk 
pundit talking uh, on this issue because it helps to keep you on the edge of your chair. It helps to increase ratings. It has no merit, and it's not a good conversation to have any longer than we're going to spend on it today. So take it from me as a, as a matter of absolute certainty where there will be no crisis over the debt ceiling this year. Uh, what Ronaldo, the, what, before, before you move on, can I just sort of ask if sure. we can put this in layman's terms? I mean, basically, sure. it sounds like what you're saying is – the country has gone out there just like a consumer would with their credit card. They've spent all this money on credit, and all we're saying is, oh, we have to pay our bill when the bill comes due, and that we can't weasel out of it just because politics uh, says, oh, we don't want to do this anymore. It's that, that is that simple. really what you're saying? It's that simple, and more importantly, Howard, as simple as that is, it's also fundamentally true that the, the 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 one thing that would unite every faction of this country against the Tea Party, the one thing, would be trying to mess with that debt ceiling. You've got people in in, in Las Vegas like Steve Wynn and Charlie Adel, Charlie Adelston who were huge huge contributors to the Sink Obama movement. You've got eighty uh, percent of the money on Wall Street was against Obama in this particular election, and every single one of those interests, the, the Las Vegas interests, the Wall Street interests, the Republican traditional donor base. All of those interests would be the liberal Democrats. All of those people all together would come and say, wait a minute, this is crazy. And just as you only had one-third of the Republicans in the House vote to deny aid to Sandy, that's the largest number you'll see vote against a debt ceiling if that bill comes to the floor. And there's a lot of ways it could avoid coming to the floor. And, and, and I just want to make one other comment because it's in the popular press now. People are asking, what's this thing about the magic coin, the platinum trillion-dollar coin? So let me simplify that for you. What that's about is quite cute. Is If somebody were to be crazy enough to test the president on the debt ceiling to see if they would, you know, wouldn't go through with it, force his hand, he literally could instruct the U.S. Mint to, put, to, to, to strike, which is called strike when you manufacture, to strike a $1 trillion platinum coin. Why platinum? Because there are restrictions on the amounts, denominations, and uh, volumes of money, whether it's paper or uh, bullion in the form of gold or silver. There's no restriction on platinum. So he could literally strike one coin for $1 trillion. He could take that coin and he could deposit it in the Fed's account that would give the Fed an additional trillion dollars, which then would take an additional trillion into the debt ceiling. So as silly as that is, and by the way, Paul Krugman, who I have a great deal of respect for, is one of the people who's validated that this is actually possible and perfectly legal. So you, you wouldn't want to do something that silly, strike a $1 trillion coin because your government was in the Republican House, the Tea Party had locked the House up. But that's, that's available to the president. Many scholars, myself included, believe the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution also gives the president the authority to do that. He declined to use it last time. Maybe he'll use it this time. But my point is, I don't even think you'll get there. I don't think you'll get there because I don't think the deficit uh, issues have anything to do with the debt ceiling, and everybody who's intelligent knows that, and the other 67 Republicans really aren't going to swing the balance. So I think what will happen is you'll see that turn out to be a non-issue, and like the last time when the Republicans tried to take this president on head-on, which was uh, over the tax issue, they turned down a deal with him where he would have given him $993 billion, uh, in, in, ta in savings, in, in expenditure cuts, in return for which he was going to give them what, he, what they ultimately got on the tax uh, side, which was everybody who makes over 450000 as a couple or 400000 as an individual, their taxes go back up. But everybody below 400000 our taxes stayed permanently down at the at the Bush tax rates. Well, that's not as good a deal as he had on the table a week earlier. And the same thing will happen with the debt ceiling. If the debt ceiling gets pushed too hard too long by the Republican minority, the Tea Party Republican, 67 people, those people will end up getting badly scarred in the process. The president won't. And I think now that Boehner's been reelected as speaker for two years, I think you're going to see that he's not about to fall on his sword for something so silly. So I really don't think it's an issue. I don't know. If I, people are going to hear about it a lot because the media likes to, to build ratings that way. But from the practical point of view, something more important is happening this week than the debt ceiling, and that is we're about to issue regulations for the first time. The consumer watchdog group that Elizabeth Warren set up is literally about to issue regulations to make home lending more fair, more transparent, and less gimmicky so people won't get trapped in bad mortgages in the future. That actually has an effect on the economy. The debt ceiling does not. We're not really thinking, I think just, again, because this is such a, a high, an issue with such high publicity and it's been banted around for so long, 
Do you think that the Republican Party is either going to self-destruct over this and, and see warring factions go to war with each other, or do you think they're going to try to find some way to save face and shift their energy and their arguments to yet another battle, perhaps the, the sequester or something like that? Well, okay, just on, the, on the non-economics of it, on the politics of it, I believe that the reason the Republicans have been making a fuss about this in the last few weeks is it was a fig leaf to cover their retreat on the Bush tax cuts issue. So they, they, they drew a line in the sand. They got badly mauled in the process, and they look terrible. They're, 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 the confidence rating of the American people is at an all-time low with regard to them, even though the confidence of the American people is, is, is quite high, actually, relative to the overall economy. Remarkably so, actually. So the, the, the issue really is they needed something they could say, well, don't worry, folks, we're going to keep the fight going. The better fight will be over the debt ceiling. I don't think they really believe that. I also don't believe Lindsey Graham really believes he's going to stop uh, Jack Lew, and we'll be talking about the Treasury Secretary nominee uh, later in the show. I don't think he believes he's going to stop, uh, stop Chuck uh, Nate Hagel from getting the defense secretary position. I don't believe they think they're going to do that. I think what they're trying to do is to get their base to believe they're fighting like you know polecats to try and keep this president uh, in their box. And every day it's clearer and clearer that they have you know that there are no um, they don't have the tools. To, to, to beat the process up the way they did last year. So I think that the politics of it, uh, they're looking for the issue that they can strike back on. They haven't found it yet. The debt ceiling is just a fig leaf they're hiding behind currently. Eventually, um, it'll transfer. So as you see, it's already transferring to nominees for the, for the cabinet. You see it transferring to other issues. And, of course, the sequester will become the big fight. Now, in that case, the sequester, that's a real fight. But that's a real values conversation that people in this country have to have. And the question really comes down to, and I think Barty Frank is articulating it quite well right now in his, in his uh, campaign to become uh, appointed the interim senator from Massachusetts. Uh, Barty cannot serve and will not run in the general election. I think Markey will win in Massachusetts. But um, for, the, for the three to four months, whatever it is, five months, that we're going to have a hole in the Massachusetts Senate seat because of Kerry being appointed to the cabinet. Barney is now really articulating quite carefully and correctly what the choices are. The choices are, do we want to continue to have a badly bloated military budget? Not because the military are bad people, because we give them assignments that are crazy. We tell them to go to faraway places and stay there for endless numbers of years at a great expense to the American Treasury. We've put them in places like Germany and Japan at our expense since 1945, when those two countries can afford it better than we can. We've, we've got, the, and then we we submit the military, we subject the military, and. Some of the people listening to the show know that I do a considerable amount of consulting with the very highest levels of the Pentagon. Those are good people in there. And, and one of their biggest resentments, frankly, they're patriots. They're trying to do their job. And we keep inflicting weapons systems on them that they don't want that consume trillions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars anyway. And it, it compromises the money they have left over for what they call readiness. So the military wants readiness dollars. They don't want to be forced to buy another jet plane that's not going to fly or has never flown in combat like the last one. So what we're really talking about here is a values decision. Do we want roads, hospitals? Do we want to take our care of our children, their educational needs? Do we want to be able to... Uh, have have uh, legitimate policing in our cities? Do we want first responders to be paid adequately? You know, is that where we want our country to be, or do we want to continue to pretend that we're some globe straddling um, uh, cyclob with a military post in every port? And and I think that's the real issue. And and, and the good thing about this issue uh, is that there's so many ways to save money in the military and improve military readiness. Uh, I won't name the, the, the people I've talked to at, in, in, in the Pentagon about this, but the ones that I've talked to are very high ranks. They're not afraid of a cut in their budget. What they're afraid is the cut, they'll be told where to cut, and they won't be told that they can cut these useless weapons programs that Congress people are for because it creates phony jobs in their districts. So really, that's really where the, the battle will come down. And I have one more comment on, on, on entitlement spending. Two comments, actually. Number one. Social Security has nothing to do whatsoever with the deficit. It's a totally different account. It has nothing to do, zero. So there's no conversation about Social Security that could be legitimate. Now, if in fact we want to change the rules of Social Security, let's say up the eligibility age, so a guy like me who's 65 has to wait till he's 67, we can have that conversation, but it's got nothing to do with the deficit. If we want to change what it's called means testing, we want to have people like me have to pay more than people who make um, minimum wage, 
Great. We can have that conversation, but that's got nothing to do with the deficit. Social Security is completely walled off in a trust fund that has nothing to do with the deficit. And by the way, it's not even scheduled to be severely understrained financially for the next 10 years. Now, let's talk about Medicare. That's the big one. Medicare is probably one of the most successful, along with Social Security, but one of the most successful programs since the Great, since the Great Depression. Now, if we want to improve the spending levels in, in, in Medicare, there's one thing we can do with a stroke of a pen that would change, would reduce the cost, eliminate the cost of 40% of all the drugs we pay for in this country, 40%. All we have to do is say that the drug companies have to sell the drugs to Americans at the same price they sell to Germans, Japanese, French, Italians, and everybody else around the world. Our national medical services are not allowed to negotiate for the true price of drugs the way every other country does and receives. So Germany buys the same drugs we do, pays 40% less for them. Now, that's because the drug lobby was able to get a bill in place that keeps their profits artificially inflated. Well, that's an entitlement we can get rid of. There's another entitlement, and if you want to go outside the med- and it's such as one Medicare thing. There, there are at least a dozen things you could do, certainly half a dozen, in, in the Medicare world that would reduce costs and would improve the quality of medical care. And that's what we should be doing, reducing costs, improving the quality of care. And by the way, ultimately covering all those 50 million people who are not currently covered, who are right. falling but, but below the safety net. Would I be right in saying that it seems like all of these forces out there that keep insisting they want smaller government, smaller government, are all actually living off the largesse of the government by, as you say, the subsidy to the drug companies. Uh, a lot of the debtor states tend to be more conservative, and they have many military bases. They push these programs. Is that what's going on here? Is this some kind of well, know, yeah, consistency? And, and, and by the way, I, I think we should get to Ethan because I really can't wait to talk with Ethan today. But, um, you know, you look at the in a great article on the front page of the New York Times, um, I guess it was just this morning, actually, about Jim McCreary, the former Louisiana congressman who heads up the uh, one of the more prestigious groups called Fix the Debt, who's been harping on these issues of entitlement cuts required and blah, blah, blah. Well, more than half of the board of Fix the Debt are comprised of lobbyists like Jim McCreary, whose job it is is they get paid to create loopholes. So all this cut the entitlement spending is just a way for the lobbyists to create new loopholes for themselves, which, by the way, they got into the last bill that just got signed. There's some more loopholes in there that didn't exist before. So these lobbyists are at work 24-7, and their own, their own committee they put together called Fix the Debt is just a front for a bunch of lobbyists trying to change the tax code so they keep their benefits and the middle class pays more. That's what's, re- that's what's really going on. If you don't have a lobbyist in Washington, you're not represented at the table. And what the president has done, and he's, I'm so proud of him for this, he drew a line in the sand. He said, you know what? We're going to shift to a fair tax burden. The top 2% have to pay more. That's step one. Step two is we should rationalize the tax code. It's one of the craziest codes in the world. Um, for some of you listening to this show, you know I'm a certified expert in tax court. As an attorney, I was trained. And I was eventually given that designation because of some very complex cases I took. And i got to tell you, as a guy who could have made my entire living doing nothing but taxes, which is a very good living, by the way, because I get paid a lot of money for that, the, the truth is this tax code is an absolute appalling mess, and it needs to be rationalized. But the rationalization has to occur in a way where it's fair, where actually we start to close the gap between the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor. And I don't think we've done the closing of the gap yet. We just took our first step. I hope the conversation on fix the debt actually in a non-contentious environment over the next five, six, eight, ten years, we continue to do more and more work on pulling loopholes out. Why are we paying $16 billion to the oil and gas industry? Don't they make enough profit as it is? Well, we do it because they have more lobbyists than anybody else. And I could go on and why does General Electric pay no, no taxes? I do. Why don't they? I mean, I could go on and on. Why is it when you offshore your income as a company, you don't have to pay taxes? I'm very proud that I'm on the board of Men's Warehouse, and we pay our taxes. It's amazing. You look at our, ta- look at our annual report, we pay our taxes. We pay 36%, like we're supposed to. We don't pay like 13 or zero. And we operate globally, so we, there's ways we could do what everybody else does if we wanted to. The point is we're trying to be good citizens, and I think everybody else needs to do the same. Having said that, which I really could – I'd love to go on at length on this subject, I think it's time to turn to Ethan. Um, yes, do you agree, Howard? Is it, yeah, because I think he's – are you on the line, Ethan? I'm on the line. Let me just introduce uh, – I've known Ethan for at least 20 years, maybe longer. I don't want to date him or me. 
Uh, he, Ethan is without a doubt one of the most knowledgeable, uh, well-educated, uh, thoughtful commentators on the entire drug war issue. He heads up uh, an organization called the Drug Policy Alliance. Uh, I will disclose my bias. I have contributed to them numerous times over the years and believe thoroughly in it. It is heavily funded by George Soros, uh, which I think is a compliment, frankly. And um, what Ethan's here to talk to us today about is this insane drug war that's been going on since the 70s, since Nixon, literally, and the cost to America. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I mean, let's start with the, the, the happy note. And I saw your column, by the way. Um, Colorado and Washington have set the precedent not only for drug reform in the United States, but probably globally was your point. Do you just want to do a little celebratory victory dance in the end zone on that one? Well, I have to say, you know, the U.S. has been leading the war when it comes to the drug war globally, right? It's not just what we're doing in our own country and locking up a half million people and spending tens of billions of dollars and arresting a million and a half people and all this sort of stuff. But even internationally, we've been shoving our policies and forcing our policies on a whole range of nations around the world, especially in Latin America. And what you see now is that almost paradoxically, the U.S. is now becoming the global leader when it comes to reforming marijuana policy. Right? You know, it's, you have not at the federal government level, but at the level of public opinion and civil society and state government, the United States is now the leader in the world when it comes to, to marijuana policy reform. We've leapfrogged the Dutch. There are one to two million legal medical marijuana patients around the, around the United States and 18 legal medical marijuana states. You know, over a dozen states have decriminalized marijuana. And now Colorado and Washington broke new ground by becoming the first two, not just states in the U.S., but political jurisdictions anywhere to vote to say it's time to legally regulate marijuana more or less like alcohol. So I think on, at least on some level we deserve a, a, sort of a pat on our backs for having uh, shown some leadership in, in this area. What's the contradiction, though, between state law and federal law? And for those people in our audience who may not know this, which one has uh, dominance? Well, under the U.S. Constitution, the federal law is supreme. So when these 18 states across the country have legalized medical marijuana and some of them are set up legal regulatory systems and what have you, the federal government still retains the legal power to prosecute anybody, including the patients, growers, anybody they want. And that's why ultimately in this, this legal issue becomes a, a political issue. So when Obama ran for office the first time and then in his first year in office, he basically announced that federal, you know, that going after medical marijuana in the states that had made it legal would not be a federal priority. And he but that didn't, less, that didn't hold up, though, Ethan. I mean, well, that's you know, one of the you, things when I, he did it in 09, it made a huge difference. It really opened up the gates to a lot of expansion of medical marijuana in Colorado and California and a range of other places. And I think it expanded so quickly that a lot of U.S. You know, federal law enforcement people got very upset, and they started pushing back the other way. So what's happening right now is that the states vary dramatically. You know, you have Montana, where they basically shut down medical marijuana. You have places like uh, some parts of California where they're keeping it from getting up and going. But then you go to Colorado, and Colorado has a statewide medical marijuana regulatory division. They've got 1,000 dispensaries or something. You go to New Mexico, where the U.S. attorney has been entirely cooperative. So there's really a great level of diversity. And what you could say about Obama, the White House, and the Justice Department is not that they're cracking down. It's that they're failing to exercise any leadership in terms of trying to help this thing move forward in a regulated way. A lot of the, uh, the prosecutions and forfeiture orders in this area are being driven by local, by the, basically the local U.S. attorneys and others. And quite frankly, when it comes to the Colorado and Washington ballot initiatives that legalized marijuana in November, and keep in mind, in Colorado, that initiative to legalize marijuana got more votes than President Obama did. And in Washington State, the, the initiative got almost as many votes as Obama and more votes than either of the Democrats who were voted in as governor or attorney general. So what's significant there is that the White House and the Attorney General did not weigh in and tell voters they better not do this. They better not vote for this, which is what they did in California two years ago. They basically stood back. So I am mildly optimistic, mildly optimistic, that the Obama White House and the Justice Department will try to engage in good faith to allow the state governments to figure out a sensible regulatory system. Well, I'm, I'm not going to come back to that, but I'm hoping. 
Yeah, I'm going to come back to that at the end of this little conversation because there's a specific thing I want to ask you about that that deals with Eric Holder and, and, and the president. But but before we go there, let's, I want to go back to the economic issues, two different sets of economic issues that I think are really critical, and I know you can speak to these, and I'm, I'm profoundly impacted. When I hear numbers like the cost of the drug war is $40 billion a year, and that, and that that money gets spent every year for no useful purpose whatsoever, and it takes money literally out of the the school lunch program. It takes money out of our education system. It takes money out of our out of out of, out of our national treasury and our, our state treasuries at a time we desperately need revenues. And that's not including the revenue that a state gets once they tax it after legalizing it. So it's much more than a forty billion dollar hit to us, which you know people are complaining about the deficit. Here's forty billion dollars of low hanging fruit, and probably more than that, if you take into account that what we would raise in taxes, it could be as high as fifty billion or more. One other point, and then I want you to respond to it. That's been going on since nineteen seventy one, I think. And 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 it's been happening in the context of us having gone in the like in the early eighties we had like three hundred thousand people incarcerated in this country, now you got one point seven million mostly for drug offenses, and they're disproportionately brown and black people in those jails. So, to, And they're destroying one generation after the other of black and brown family, home, uh, families, uh, cohesive families, because the, the fathers and mothers are all off doing time in prison for minor drug offenses. So my question is, on that pure economic argument, isn't this insane? <laughs> of course it is. I mean, you got to break out the issues, right? The first one is the broader drug war, the entire thing, all the drugs that are legal, and it's a minimum of $40 billion in direct expenditures at the federal, state, and local level. But as you suggested, Ronaldo, it probably adds up to double or more than that when you count the indirect costs. Like when you lock up, you know, some woman whose boyfriend was involved in drug dealing and she was answering the phone and she goes to prison for five years and is an accomplice and then her kids get thrown in the child welfare system and the impact on them, you know, the direct cost is the incarceration, prosecution and incarceration of that woman. The indirect costs are all the other things that happen in terms of the loss of the tax revenue that she might have been paying from a legal job in addition to the cost of putting the kid into the system, in addition to the cost of children not growing up, you know, growing up without their parents. So we're talking about a cumulative expense that may amount to $100 billion or more, which, you know, it's not going to solve the nation's budget deficits, but we're still talking serious money. In many states during the 1990s and into the 2000s, building new state prisons was the number one fastest growing item in state budgets. And you had states like California, which used to be known as the state of higher education, you know, now becoming known as the state of higher incarceration, which used to have a three-to-one ratio between spending on, on education and, and incarceration or criminal justice, and now you have actually the law enforcement side being more than what they're spending on education. So in that uh, sense, Ethan, it's is a disaster. Is it true? Yeah. Uh, I know these statistics were borne out a number of years ago, but that actually prison guards earn, on average, more than our public school teachers do? Well, and, I mean, and with their pensions and so forth, that their cost is astronomical. That's my understanding. I mean, the most notorious of these has been the, the uh, Prison Guards Union in California, which is widely regarded as one of, if not the most powerful forces in the state legislature. And so, you know, these guys have worked out an amazing deal for themselves. Um, they, they were a very forceful opponent to major drug policy and criminal justice reform. They were our opponents when we ran a ballot initiative in California in 2000 to require treatment instead of incarceration that we won. They were our opponents in 2008 when we ran another ballot initiative that would have been the biggest prison reform in the history of the United States and where they beat us. They raised and put in millions of dollars. So they've been a powerful force against reform. And mind you, on the other side of this thing have been the private prison corporations, especially in the South, who have also been forceful advocates for the drug war. Now that said, and to be fair, I think that the California Prison Guards Union has begun to change its tune in recent years. You know, when, they, when, the, when California voted uh, whether or not to legalize marijuana, the Prison Guards Union stayed out of that fight. And more and more, we're beginning to hear the prison guards union at least beginning to ally with other labor in saying too much money going into the, you know, the prison system. We've got to pull back a bit. So this stuff's in play. There's a slight shift going on, but it is definitely a venal force when you have the people who profit 
from mass incarceration, whether it's the private prison corporations or the prison guards unions, being the ones who have the principal voice in shaping state and national policy. And, and by the way, I want, I want to just underscore that because it's one of the things that's stuck in my craw for a long time. The people with the most financial gain in keeping the drug war going are prison guards, the private prison industry that gets to own all these places and make billions of dollars of profit every year, and the drug companies who can then artificially keep prices on things like Valium high because nobody can grow their own. I'll tell you, it's a good thing that the prison guards unions and the private prison corporations hate one another, or they would be a truly dominant force. Right? Because, you know, I mean, in fact, one of the things that happened once some years ago, Schwarzenegger was thinking of building new prisons, but if he built them, he was going to say that they were going to be privatized. So at that point, you had the prison guards union saying, well, wait a second, maybe we don't want any more prisons, right? And so right. the only thing what the prison guards unions have been doing is saying, it's not that they want more people behind bars. What they want to do is to basically get more overtime pay for their members. They, had a, they feel like they had enough members. So at this point, let's focus on working this, what have you. On the pharmaceutical side, Ronaldo, I mean, there it's very interesting on the marijuana issue. Because I think what's really going on in the whole marijuana legalization thing, that as momentum shifts to our side, is that you have essentially a race. And on one side are all the drug policy reformers, my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, and others, who are trying to legalize marijuana, you know, basically more or less the way that alcohol is right now, maybe a little tougher regulation. And at the same time saying there's a very legitimate medical side to this, which the pharmaceutical industry should be pursuing so that they can develop more refined products. Right? They can deal with specific medical conditions. On the other side is the sort of anti-marijuana folks allied with the pharmaceutical industry, and they're basically trying to delay the broader legalization of marijuana until they can develop a sufficient number of pharmaceutical marijuana products so that they can monopolize as much of the profit for themselves. Yeah, and, and just a footnote for those who are – and we'll, we aren't going to go into this today, folks, but there's a, there's a product on the, on the market called Mar- Marinol, which clearly hasn't worked, doesn't do as well as the is, is, is the is the more natural ingredient uh, THC and uh, tetrahydrocannabinol in marijuana in terms of uh, dealing with the advanced issues of cancer, uh, being able to keep your food down, et cetera. And so the, they're they're still scrambling to get a better version of marinol, uh, and they haven't got it yet. Is what your point is? Yeah, I mean marinol is the kind of oral THC. It works for some people, not as well for most people who smoke marijuana. But the fact of the matter is, more and more, you know, serious scientists are saying that marijuana and the cannabinoid receptor system in the human body may represent the most interesting areas of medical research going on right now in terms of the brain and receptor sites and all this sort of stuff. So there's very, I mean, right now, Bayer Pharmaceutical, for example, bought, I think, a controlling interest in GW Pharmaceutical, which is the leading medical marijuana production research facility based in the U.K., so there's a very serious medical side here. There's a legitimate role for the pharmaceutical companies to play in, becoming, in developing sophisticated products, ones that isolate specific ingredients for marijuana and identify them with certain medical conditions. But none of that should block the broader movement towards ending marijuana prohibition and the mass arrests and all of that. Okay, well, that, that, let me just, because I know we're going to be running out of time here, but I want to touch on one other issue you started with, and that is the, the, the effect of our drug war on Latin America. If listeners of this show, regular listeners, know that we've been saying since the show started, literally, that no Latin American country, particularly Mexico, can, can stand up to America's drug habit. What we mean by that is when you supply billions and billions of dollars of illegal, illegal dollars, so black market dollars that go under the, under the radar, into a country as poor as Mexico, and, and you supply them with all the guns they could possibly want to enforce their, their cartels and their, and their uh, areas of distribution. When you do that, you create corruption in that country that no country that size can withstand. It, basically, it's impossible for Mexico to, to, to ever balance its economy, really, and get out, of its dr- get out of its own internal wars as long as we keep fueling it with illegal drug money. Do you agree with that? Yeah. No, I mean, look, I mean what, you know, what I say about Mexico is it reminds me of, you know, Chicago during the days of Al Capone times 50. Now, what's right. different now, though, than a few years ago is that the movement for reform in Latin America, you know, when I look back on 2012, which I would describe as the, mo- the best year ever for drug policy reform, and I'll point to two things in particular. One is the legalization of marijuana in Washington, Colorado, and the other one is the growing level of support, especially at the highest levels of government and politics and media, for drug policy reform in Latin America. 
So beginning a few years ago, you had a number of former presidents, Cardoso from Brazil, Gaviria from Colombia, Zedillo from Mexico, organizing a whole bunch of former Latin American leaders to say, enough is enough, we need a different approach. And what began to happen this past year is you actually have had not just former presidents, but current presidents begin to say this stuff. So, I mean, Renata, I'll tell you, last year, I usually don't get to meet with presidents, but last year I met individually with the presidents of Mexico and then with Guatemala and with Colombia, right, and sometimes more than once, for frank conversations about what's going on. So we now have at the highest levels of government allies for ending the war on drugs and putting this issue on the global agenda, pushing for a U.N. reconsideration of the global drug war, pushing back at the U.S. That's all new. It's remarkably significant, and it means that we're finally succeeding in legitimizing a broader discussion of drug policy where options like legal regulation, decriminalization, harm reduction, cannabis legalization all become part of the mainstream discussion. Ethan, let me, let me, let me ask you before we, before we go. Um, we have four years left in this administration. Would you be willing to project where we'll be by the end of the, this term with drug well, policy and marijuana policy? It, it, I, I can break it into a few areas, right? The first one is on marijuana legalization. We have the momentum now. There's no guarantee it'll, it'll persist. But you can plan on there being a marijuana legalization initiative on the ballot in California four years from now. And you can plan on being on the ballot in other states, ranging from Oregon and Nevada to Maine and elsewhere, sometime in the next two or four years. So we're going to see more victories and more progress on that front. Well, it's hard to say what the Obama administration is going to do, but my guess is that they will not be quite as aggressive as they've been in the last couple of years. That they saw Colorado swing states. Young voters care about this issue a lot, and they decided to stay out of that battle. So I think, you know, the Democrats, and even for that matter, Republicans, are looking to the future and more and more seeing that being a, an anti-marijuana ideologue does not serve their political interests. On that point, let me just interject here for a second, because, I mean, you know, we, we, and, and I'm not going to ask you any questions because it's too fresh, but this guy Aaron Sandusky, who just received a 10-year prison sentence in California two days ago uh, for operating legal marijuana dispensaries above board. Um, now, you said earlier in the show, and I wanted to come back to it, it's really these, these, these local uh, U.S. attorneys, and in the case of, of Sandusky, clearly, because the, the local U.S. attorney couldn't wait to take credit for it, and went on to say, um, in fact, the spokesman, Mrozak, said that uh, we've, we've closed 90% of the distilleries, the distributors we've gone after, and we'll keep closing more of them all the time. So he was basically saying, and that's what I'm reading from yesterday's Huffington Post. So, so I'm looking at something here, and I'm saying, What's going on where the president doesn't realize how much damage Eric Holder has done to him? Because you're you're correct that these local guys are sort of doing it on their own, but Eric Holder apparently is not doing much to try and rein it in either. What is that about A and B? Is he likely to get reappointed? And C, if he is, do you think that the president will rein this thing in a little well, bit? Well, you know, it's not clear whether or not Holder wants to be reappointed, and a lot depends. You know, is it going to be Deval Patrick, the governor of Massachusetts, who becomes the next AG? Is it going to be Janet Napolitano, who's the current uh, you know Homeland Security? So. Part of it depends upon who does get appointed for the next term. I don't remember. Obama's not running again, so he's not going to care as much about it from that political perspective. I think there, you know, what you hear from people, what I hear from people who have spoken privately to the president and vice president about this, and that includes wealthy Democratic donors, it includes some people high up in the administration, and it includes foreign presidents. They all say that they feel Obama is inclined personally towards more reform. And the question is, is how do you do it in a responsible way? I mean, let's not forget that as long as the federal laws are what they are, the White House cannot order a U.S. attorney not to enforce federal law. You know, Bush got in trouble for trying to do something like that. The White House and the attorney general can say, as a matter of priority, you should not be prioritizing medical marijuana, but they cannot mandate that a U.S. attorney not. No, no, that's true. But but they could do what we did at the beginning of this call, Ethan. They could put out a white paper showing the ridiculous costs, and they could tie it to the fiscal reduction, debt reduction, if they right, want to. Right. No, they they could do. More there's that. a lot of ways the they could thing, do. By it. the way, we well, you know, just off the marijuana area. The other thing I took a little bit of hope from was that Obama, in an interview in Time magazine a few weeks ago, finally raised the issue of trying to do more about the issue of over incarceration in America. So I, you know, he's making clear he's not going to be a bold leader on this, but I think they know that this issue is out there. There's all the evidence suggests that Obama and key people around him do not like the mass incarceration in the United States, 
What I've heard from people close to him is that he's been sort of leaning over backwards, that he is the first black president, you know, is wary of writing leadership on an issue that disproportionately involves black people in this way. But I do think we're going to see some movement. I think either Congress or the White House may appoint uh, an independent commission to try to reassess the state of criminal justice in America, sort of like the, the old Wickersham Commission back in uh, the early 1930s appointed by President Hoover. So I do think we're going to move in the right direction. I do think there's going to be fewer people locked up in America four years from now than there are right now. I do think that the whole marijuana thing is going to continue to open up. I do think there's going to be continued momentum towards treating addiction as a health issue. So, you know, we got a long way to go. But we have, our momentum now is unprecedented on multiple fronts domestically, internationally, and I think that bodes well generally. Well, on, that, on that optimistic note, we're going to have to draw this interview to a close, but I'll tell you, I would love to have you back on the show, Ethan, in the future, just because there's so many aspects of this, as it rolls forward. No one is more articulate and more knowledgeable for the last 25 years in America, probably the world, than you on this subject. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Ronaldo. Thank you for your support as well. Thank you very much, Ethan. We genuinely appreciate you coming on the show today. And thanks Thank again. Okay. Ronaldo, at this point, it's time for our lightning round, which for those of you who may be tuning in for the first time, lightning round is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. Uh, today, we're going to take a closer look at gold, housing, and oil. Uh, Ronaldo, let's take it away. Yeah, let's let's start. Off. First of all, I want to acknowledge um, a couple of our listeners who uh, catalyzed the conversation this week in writing with us in a series of emails that we received and responded to. Both Howard and I responded to uh, on the gold issue. So I want to express my appreciation and urge all of you out there who have ideas and questions, please send them in, and we'll treat them on the air just as we're about to do with the gold issue. Now we usually talk briefly about gold and have for at least a year and a half or so on this show because it's one of the things that's uppermost in people's minds, particularly in periods of time of great uncertainty as we've passed through now and are coming to the end of. Uh, and by the way, I, I, I do want, Howard, in the last um, two minutes of the show, I want to give my economic forecast for 2013 and what I think is going to happen going into 2014. I want to update it from uh, Good. a couple well, months ago. We'll, we'll save that time for you. Yeah. So, so the point of the gold story is this. We started saying quite some time ago, um, probably I'm going to say, and Howard would have the records, but I'm going to say we, we started saying at least a year ago that we thought gold was due to go sideways. And, and we said, if you've got it, go ahead and hold it. Don't go necessarily go in to buy it because we don't see a lot of upside yet, but maybe a little more upside than downside. If you got it, hold it. Don't worry about selling it. Last month we said, you know, it's time to consider selling it. And, and we went back and looked, and I asked Howard to check for me, and it turns out that uh, that advice we've been giving people on gold has been stunningly accurate, meaning that for about a year and a half, gold has virtually gone sideways. Now, why is that relevant, and how did our viewers, uh, listeners, uh, bring it to our attention? Well, the question came up as well, even if gold's going sideways, why is that a bad thing? Why shouldn't we hold it? Isn't there a great risk that X, Y, and Z could happen, and the price of gold would go through the roof? So what we did, Howard and I, is we responded – for all the reasons why we don't think it's likely, anything's possible, but not likely for gold to go up dramatically in the, in the near future. And call the near future anything less than 12 months. Conversely, we see a number of things on the horizon that could cause the price of gold to go down in the next 12 months. Uh, one of them being the increasing economic activity we're experiencing with a very, very low rate of inflation. But now, but, but whatever, we said, but if you're going to keep holding it, and you've been holding it for a year and a half with basically getting no return on your money, and gold is expensive to hold if you actually own the bullion. And when we say gold on this show, we don't mean gold stocks or gold ETFs. Owning a gold stock or a gold ETF is still owning a stock. So when we talk about gold, unless we say otherwise, we're really talking about the physical metal, bullion. And, and what we want people to hear is if you're holding something for a year and a half and it's produced no revenue for you, and you've got an opportunity cost, meaning you could have made at least 5% or more on your money during that same period of time. So whatever your goal was when you started, it's worth, after one year, 5% less than when you started. So you lost money. In addition, the costs of holding gold are not inconsequential because it, it pays to actually physically hold bullion and put it somewhere, even just put it in your own safety deposit box. So what we're saying is that the downside to holding gold is it's not going anywhere. Why would you keep hanging on to something that costs you money to hold on to and doesn't make you any money? So 
So now that we believe, as we said in our comments in October and in November, uh, specifically in November we came out quite strong in December, that it's safe to be back into the market again. It, we, we're urging people, as I did, I think, in December, I bought an S&P 500 index. I think I'm going to do way better than gold. And in fact, Howard, was it 1150 when I bought that? Uh, Didn't we look that up? Yeah, I believe it was about that. Howard's Howard's our official referee. He keeps track of these things (laughs) for me, so I don't because I can't remember. But I think it was 1150. And just to give you some idea, folks, the S and P 500 right now is at 1461 today. So we've had a a significant upward movement on the S&P, and gold is exactly where it was a year and a half ago. So my recommendation to you is gold only works in one of two ways. Either it's because of fear, actually three ways, fear. So if you think things are going to get bad, people start to buy gold because they're afraid of the future. The second thing that causes gold to go up is high levels of inflation. That isn't a problem and not in the foreseeable future. And by the way, if fear starts to kick in, or if inflation starts to kick in, you've always got time to go buy the gold back. So it's not like you're, you, know, you can't ever go buy it again if there's something goes wrong. It's not like you won't be able to get your hands on it. So my goal is to say, look, your gold isn't something right now that you need in any consequential way in your portfolio. The third reason to hold gold, unrelated to fear, unrelated to inflation, is if you think you're going to have to flee the country and you want to wear your wealth on your, on your, on your neck. Uh, and that's true in Southeast Asia. That's not a joke. That's actually how people look at it in many parts of the world. And that's a different issue. That's like you know, wearing your wealth rather than putting it into something productive. So my recommendation to folks, and this is what the series of emails uh, produced, was let the gold go for now. It's probably not doing you that much good. And take that money and find really thoughtful ways to invest it in the market, knowing that there is downside risk to treasuries, which we'll talk about in a second. But knowing that equities are looking pretty good, and, and, and we have a very unusual combination right now in, in the equity markets and that we're probably sitting at the, at the beginning of the next up leg in the equity markets. We're sitting with companies having enormous cash resources. We're sitting at a time when even substantially healthy companies are paying record dividends. And you're talking about the possibility of um, any number of good economic events happening, which could cause a breakout for one or more stocks. So I like equities right now. I like ho- home ownership. We've talked about that, and I'll, I think I'll segue to that. Uh, Howard, is there anything well, else I should cover with that exchange? For a moment and talk about the uh, the S and P. We did actually purchase it at around uh, 142, 43. Uh, we are up in terms of where we bought it. In terms of talking about it on the show, uh, we're up roughly about two percent, and it's but it's also yielding two percent, meaning in these few months we've already gotten a, roughly a four percent return. Yeah. Um, or the potential four percent return to be more accurate. Right. Um, whereas gold, you know, people often say to me, "Well, it's gone up two hundred dollars." Well, but two hundred dollars on a sixteen hundred dollar purchase is not a big percentage, and it fluctuates that much on a on a routine basis. Um, it's really like going between fifteen dollars a share and sixteen dollars a share. It's not a huge increase. Um, on a percentage basis, and people often get confused by big numbers. It, it's a f- fascinating phenomenon to see that, how that happens with folks. Um, so it really is not a, a good place to be at the moment. Yeah. So uh, I think we've – is there anything that came up in that string of emails and stuff that we should talk about? That I think we've covered it pretty much in summary fashion. If people want more specific information on gold, please send us in an email, and we'll continue down this line next time. Uh, but I, I think we've hit the high points of what the questions were. Uh, I did not touch on the issue of silver in these conversations. I've touched on it many times in the past. My statement about silver, and if you want more information why, please send us a note. We'll do more shows on it. But silver is not for anybody who isn't extraordinarily sophisticated and extraordinarily active in the commodity markets. I don't know enough to play silver safely. I don't think anybody does. And it isn't just the Hunt Brothers that can cause, can cause distortions in that market. Those distortions get caused from a variety of ways it's an easily captured market it's a very it's, it's an easy market to abuse and it has a, it, all sorts of angles associated with it that you as a layman and me as a layman we're never going to figure out so stay out of silver it's never good for anybody that's not a super pro that isn't really in their gaming commodities all the time okay um i think we covered that let's go now to housing which, as, um, as everyone knows who listens to the show, we've been urging people for at least six months now that the housing market had bottomed out. Uh, we said that it's time to buy. You'll never see rates as low in mortgages combined with house prices as this low in your lifetime. That has turned out to be true. The housing market did bottom out about three four months ago. 
We're on a continuing upswing now. Even some of the most uh, badly damaged housing markets, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Arizona, all are rising. There are pockets where I still would not buy a home. Uh, For example, I would not buy a home in Florida for a whole bunch of reasons, but largely because too vulnerable to climate change, and the insurance rates are going to keep going up and up and up and up, making it less and less affordable to own a home there. So, and by the way, Florida, for the going into its third year now of net migration, so more people leaving the state than coming in, which also puts depression on housing prices. Now, one of the things that we didn't talk about a lot, we've touched on it, but not a lot on housing, is during the last four or five years, when people have been very fearful, um, people have avoided buying houses because either they didn't have the cash or couldn't. And, and, and even during that period of time, though, new houses were formed, and they call it new house formation or new household formation is the way economists refer to it, meaning people come together, two or more, looking for a place to live, and they can't afford to buy one, so they rent. So that put a lot of nice upward pressure on the rental market, but it, didn't, it, it created a bunch of pent-up demand in the housing market. And what you're starting to see now is that pent-up demand is moving into housing. So we feel with a high degree of confidence you can buy housing now, get the best mortgage you can. The new rules, as I said, are coming out soon, which will make it harder for the banks to cheat you. Thank goodness. Not impossible, so watch what you do and read what you sign. But it will be harder to cheat you when these new rules come out next week. The, um, and thank you, Elizabeth Warren, for creating the beginning of an even playing field with the consumer and the banks. I would like to really point out, though, that it's important that this pent-up demand for housing linked together with rising housing values together with low mortgage prices means that owning your own home is going to continue to be one of the best things you could do in 2013. So I'm really, really bullish about houses in 2013, and I believe there will be a similar uptick by mid-year, I believe by mid-year, and I'm going to update this every month, in the commercial market because I think the commercial office building market is going to start responding to the rising economic activity. And we've been looking at this now for the last three shows, and I have said to you in the past, it's not quite there yet. I don't see that we've – it may not be quite at the bottom, but it's very close to the bottom, if not at the bottom now. And that would mean that I'm beginning – I'm going to begin to see some nice increase in yields in what's called commercial real estate as well. Oil, your favorite subject, Howard. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, uh, I think it's magical the price of oil went up $10 since the election. Uh, What do you ascribe that to? (laughs) Well, again, many factors, uh, one of which is is our political theory that has been in place for almost 35 years since the first nationalization of the oil industry in the Mideast, which is that oil as an entity never wants to be seen as a political problem unless they're going to manipulate something very specifically, as they did in California in the fall, with the raise in gas prices just in California. Which, by uh, the way, is still states. under investigation. Still under investigation. They might get caught for that like they got for, caught for Enron. It's possible, but again, we've seen how most entities that get caught get slapped on the wrist. Uh, but again, it's it hit its low just around the election. It was $85 a barrel. It is now inched up. Uh, and it's been bouncing around between 94, uh, 95, 93, in that range for the past few days. Um, that's a good 10% increase in just two months in the price of oil. Um, and we expect we're probably going to see more of that as the year wears on and we get into summer driving well, season, and, and, following heating re- season. Yeah, and I, I want to refer our listeners to something we said probably six shows six months ago. One of the reasons we knew it would go back to the eighty-five, dollars to $95 range, we knew that, was because that's the price at which Saudi Arabia and Russia have to sell it if they're going to keep themselves politically stable. And when you can control the flow of global oil supply the way the Saudis and the Russians can, you've got you to gotta know the price is going to end up where they want it as long as they have that level of control. What's going to compromise that control, and you're already seeing it, in one parallel uh, fossil fuel market, which is coal, you notice that coal continues to be displaced. Four coal plants have been shut off voluntarily in Georgia this, this week because coal is so much more expensive than natural gas. Now, we in this show don't like fracking, and we can talk endlessly about that. But at the end of the day, the price of natural gas today is so low that coal is no longer competitive. What you're going to see is continuing pressure on oil the same way because 
when you leave the historical trading range of oil to natural gas, which is just basically BTUs in one shape or another, it puts downward pressure on oil that's hard even for Saudi Arabia and Russia to resist. Believe me, if that downward pressure of natural gas wasn't there, you'd be seeing oil at $110 a barrel right now. Third factor that's really key that people need to start watching, so much cracked oils coming out of the Permian Basin right now, they cannot ship it fast enough from Midland, Texas to where the refineries at the Gulf Coast. So the result is, for the first time ever, we're seeing what's called West, West Intermediate Crude, which is the West Texas oil. Now that te West Texas oil should never be different from the price in the Gulf Coast by more than a couple of dollars a barrel to allow for transportation. It's a $10 split in climbing right now. They're literally going to have to put the stuff on on, on um, trucks to get it there because the pipelines are full with all the oil coming out of the Midwest. So I just want folks to know these are interesting times where the transitions that are happening in the, in the global fuel gears are all starting to change. And as they change, it actually bodes fairly well for the consumer in the short run. And I believe, politically, we'll start to chip away at the monolith of fossil fuel control of our energy system. Ronaldo, we're coming up to just four minutes left in the show. So I do want to mention a couple of things before I turn it back to you for your closing remarks. And that is our next uh, show in February will be on the 14th, which is a Thursday at 11 a.m. Um, you can also follow us at any time and download at any time from the, our website. That's worldbusiness.org. And again, we'd love to get your emails and comments, uh, questions, and that's info at worldbusiness.org. In fact, uh, let me add to that, Howard. I, I, I just did, and I hope people got the conclusion on the oil that we see the 85 to 95. That, that's the trading range for the foreseeable future. We'll update you next month, but oil prices aren't going substantially up or down between now and the next show. So drive with comfort that, uh, and be conservative. Don't use many more than you have to. Why enrich the other guy? But basically, that's sort of where the range will be. The, the part I want to add to what Howard just said, though, which I think is really important, I want to thank everybody who's listening, uh, particularly people who've listened for many months in a row. Please tell your friends. Please go get – tell them to pick up the MP3. It's free, as you know. There's three years worth of broadcast there, so you've got all kinds of ways to figure out whether or not you think or they think that there's validity in, in the way we cover the news. But I really hope that every single listener this month will go out and tell at least two or three other people about what we do because the more people who listen – the more credibility it gives our point of view, and the bigger chance we have to inflect, to affect the public dialogue. And that's really our goal at the World Business Academy, is to try to positively affect the public dialogue. So you're helping actually change the conversation when you get people to listen to the show, and I really urge you all to do it. And for those of you who have already done already, thank you. But I hope that you can tell your spouses and your friends and everybody else you care about, listen in, you'll learn something about the, the markets that will actually help you financially yourself, but more importantly, you'll begin to see how these pieces of business and society fit together and how we can co-create the new paradigm. Now, I, I wanted to end the show, as I said with Howard a little while ago. There's an interesting thing that happened just this morning. It was reported on the front page of the Financial Times of London. The U.S. Fear, interesting, it was reported there. Um, the, the U.S. Fear Index, uh, which, is a, which is an index that's created to, to, to calculate or to try to track how badly people are feeling about the future of equities. Again, we, we've been talking for the last two shows before today about equities and getting into it. I want to report that that fear index plummeted this month. It's at a five-and-a-half-year low relative to where people have been. People are becoming less fearful. Now, that's really important given how much fear we've been fed by the political process. So I'm really, really encouraged that the fear index has plummeted. It, it underscores the likelihood of a strong 2013. So I said I wanted to update my projection. My projection historically for the show for the last six to eight months has been in 2013. And I gave a couple of caveats, re-election of President Obama and a couple others, but they're all past us now. We're going to see an, a minimum of 2.5% positive GDP growth annualized by June of this year. And I believe we could hit 3% or above by December on an annualized basis. That means we have really turned the corner, that, they, that you're going to see an acceleration of the recovery. And it's going to happen despite the Republican Congress, which is sad to say. Now, it would happen a lot faster and be a lot more broad-based and a lot stronger, and unemployment would drop quicker if we had a jobs bill that was shut down by the Republicans. I hope it gets resubmitted. If we started allocating money into infrastructure where it belongs, 
We started rehiring at the state level the first responders, the police, the firemen, the paramedics, and the teachers, frankly. All those things will cause the recovery to accelerate, and every single one of you listening will benefit financially from it. So isn't it great news to know that if we did the right thing, repair our bridges and roads, put money into our schools, start opting to take care of our children, when we start doing the right things, this economy grows even faster than it's currently growing, and right now it's growing at a third faster than it was just six months ago. Literally, it's a third faster than six months ago. So it's time for us to be really grateful for that, celebrate this victory, keep the administration's feet to the fire that it doesn't forget who it really works for, which is the 98% of us that are out there with our jobs trying to keep care of our families and put our kids through school. And if we do that, if we just keep, if we just hold, stay the course, even without Republican cooperation, we're going to do really well this year. With Republican cooperation, we could have a very, very, very big breakout. That, that's my very optimistic but very accurate, I think, forecast for 2013. And my forecast for 2014 is it will be even better than 2013. Well, with that, Ronaldo, we are actually out of time for today. Again, I would like to thank Ethan Nadelman uh, from being on our show today. And, Ronaldo, thank you as well for being as informative as you always are. And with that, I bid you all a happy new year and a good day. Thanks again for listening and tune in next month. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye now.